Hello, podcast listeners. Today is a very special episode with Tom Glanfield, founding partner, portfolio manager at Quantix Commodities, and Christoph Gleisch, president, chief investment officer at Harbor Capital Advisors. Tom brings over 14 years of experience in commodities markets. Before Quantix, he worked at Goldman Sachs and was the global head of investor swaps trading, lead index options and commodity structures products trader, and head of European oil products and global head of oil derivatives. Tom earned his Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering with a minor in Economics from MIT. Christoph joined Harbor Capital Advisors in 2018 and was appointed Chief Investment Officer in 2020. Before this, he was Managing Director and Global Head of Manager Selection at J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Physics from the University of Bristol. In today's episode, we discuss commodity investing and inflation. I want to welcome both Tom and Christoph to the show. And I want to welcome all our listeners to a very special episode. This podcast is sponsored by the Hidden Value Stocks newsletter. Published once a quarter, the Hidden Value Stocks newsletter contains at least two interviews with up-and-coming hedge fund managers and their top two favorite investment ideas. Each newsletter subscriber not only receives a detailed investment thesis on each idea, but we will also provide direct access to the fund's profile, as well as their quarterly updates. We are proud to report that the average annualized return of all 60 stocks profiled in hidden value stocks since inception is 27.9%, with an average holding period of 319 days. To download a 10-page teaser issue or sign up for a five-day free trial, head over to hiddenvaluestocks.com. Podcast listeners can get 35% off the annual subscription price with discount code VIP19. Welcome to Value Talk with Raul. Just wanted to welcome all our listeners to a very special episode. I have Tom Glanfield, founding partner, portfolio manager at Quantix Commodities, and Christoph Gleisch, president, chief investment officer at Harbor Capital Advisors. And Tom and Christoph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, if we can just begin, if you can tell us who you are and what uh, you're here to talk about today. Uh, sure. So thank you for having us both on, Raoul. So today we want to talk about what we think is the most important theme and asset class in investing today, which we think is inflation and commodities. Uh, we think in this inflation cycle is going to be unlike anything that we've seen in the past uh, you know, 30 or 40 years. And so we're excited to, to dive more into that. Uh, just as a, a quick intro, so I'm the president and the chief investment officer of Harbor Capital Advisors. Harbor is a 55 billion assets under management active investor. We invest across public markets, including equities, fixed income and commodities. And what makes us a little bit different is we partner with outside money managers, investors and specialists across the world to bring unique alpha oriented solutions to our clients. Our latest partner is Tom, um, a founding partner at Quantix Commodities, uh, which is a Greenwich-based um, boutique specializing across the commodities spectrum. And we've recently partnered uh, together to bring to the market what we hope and expect will become the, the industry benchmark for how investors should think about hedging uh, inflation risk in their portfolio on a, on a go-forward basis. Nice. And just want to know, what are your views on inflation? Why is it so high? And when will we see normal levels and how can that be achieved? So uh, there's a lot to, to unpack in that question. Why don't I, why don't I start? And I'm sure Tom uh, will, will jump in as well. Uh, but before answering that question directly, it's worth taking, I think, a step back and just considering how sort of poorly inflation is just understood, you know, despite the Fed's hundreds, if not thousands of PhDs and economists, you know, no one inside the Fed predicted this with the situation that we're in. So let's take, let's all take our humility pills um, at the beginning of this conversation uh, as it relates to this topic. So I'd say the inflation picture today 
is pretty complicated uh, to predict exactly. There are multiple different drivers. Um, some of those drivers are cyclical, that they're more linked to the economic cycle, and some of them are more secular, meaning they're driven by longer term forces. And it's really, I think, important when we talk about inflation to talk about what's cyclical and what's secular and how do those two things kind of interact with one another. They're kind of like different waves with different wavelengths that can go in and out of phase. But right now, they're definitely in phase. And I think everything sort of points to higher and persistent inflation um, than, than, we've, than we've seen in, in the last 40 years or so. Um, so a couple of things I'll, I'll mention, you know, where we are in the economic cycle, uh, we're later in the economic cycle. This is a truly unusual economic cycle because it was punctuated uh, by COVID uh, later in the cycle. So that makes it a bit more confusing, but I would say broadly we're later in the cycle and later in the cycle inflation is higher. Um, we have a very unusual labor market. Um, we have a labor market that's you know, tighter than it's been in, in, in decades. Um, and that leads to wage inflation, leads to rising wages, leads to inflation. So we have a very, very tight labor market and we don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, you, we, we have a, a growth, um, an economy with growth that is running too high. You know, there's sort of an optimal level of growth that an economy can grow at without causing inflation. And clearly at the moment, growth is running too hot. And again, I think that a lot of that traces back to what happened with COVID and the stimulus, and the, uh, which was all necessary at the time. But, you know, the economy is definitely running too hot today. So what does that mean? Demand is outstripping supply. And then I think we have this echo of, of COVID. Um, you know, knock on wood. COVID is more behind us um, and, and will begin to disappear into the rearview mirror, uh, but it's still causing distortions. You know, we're still, I don't know if you've, you know, tried to order something online, but the waiting times and the supply chain disruptions and distortions are, are still there. Um, and the whole world is not treating COVID equally. You know, what's going on in China at the moment is, uh, is, is very different from what's going on here in the US or in my home of the UK. Um, and then I think, you know, maybe Tom, there's some sort of structural sources of inflation as well, but I don't know if you wanna jump in and add anything uh, to that. I broadly agree with Christoph's comments uh, and I can answer more specifically as it relates to the commodity markets and what we see from our unique perspective. Um, I think that we suffer from two major things that are driving the current commodity market inflation. One is, a structural underinvestment. And Christoph mentioned being later in the cycle. That is characteristic of being later in the cycle. I think in the current environment, though, it's um, exaggerated by also being coupled with sort of a move away from investors' interest in hydrocarbons. The second major driver is, is the strong global growth. And we were seeing strong baseline growth. We had a very short blip, uh, blip uh, associated with COVID to commodity demand. Um, but the stimulus on top of an existing pretty strong baseline uh, has definitely driven a tremendous amount of growth. And almost all of the commodities that we look at are currently in a deficit. To have this many commodities in a deficit simultaneously is very unusual. Um, looking forward, if by normal you mean 2% inflation, from the commodity view, I don't think we see that for a very long time. To get there, you need to solve either both or one of these problems, depending on how well you solve it. When I look at the underinvestment, I just don't see how that's going to be resolved in any material way. Most of the production increases that have been announced only just offset the existing decline rates, which is the rate at which production is naturally decreasing from existing wells. So I don't think you're going to see very big production increases in, in commodities. Um, even ignoring what's happening in, in Russia and the Ukraine, um, which means that to solve the inflation problem, you ultimately need to create demand destruction. And creating demand destruction in commodities is very difficult, especially with a lot of with certain commodities that are very price inelastic, uh, where demand is very price inelastic. Um, so I think the path is, is going to be higher commodity prices um, until you see sufficient demand destruction to uh, bring inflation inflation lower. And I think we're um, I think we're a ways away from demand destruction today. 
when you look at how strong the economy is still growing. And I think that the Fed realizes that. And that's why they've done such a pivot on their rhetoric around um, interest rates. So I think that's going to be, be, be interesting to watch. I would agree. I, I don't think that we're getting anywhere near the levels of demand destruction. I think we're going to see sustained higher commodity prices and, um, and backwardation, which is where you have an inverted yield curve. So the more prompt prices are higher than the deferred. And how has the Russian invasion impacted the inflation dynamic? Uh, the sanctions are obviously very bullish for, for commodities, um, although I would argue that from a commodity perspective, very little of that is actually priced into current inflation. Um, you know, it'll take a while for the increase in the raw um, commodities, which is what has been most impacted by the sanctions, to actually trickle through to um, consumed consumer products. So I think that the initial impact uh, to commodities has been reasonably priced in, but a longer term or more prolonged impact uh, currently is not, is not being priced in. And I think you need to look a little bit at what's happening in each sector to understand how Russia is impacting it. Uh, in oil, it's obviously very bullish. Russia is a major exporter and producer of, of the oil markets. But the SPR release by the US and other major um, developed economies was, is very substantial and unprecedented in size, such that it has essentially pushed, you know, kicked the can down the road, where we're not really feeling the pain of that um, of the loss of Russian production today, we're going to feel it six months from now. So what it's really done is just deferred it. And in reality is created a situation that's even more bullish in that you're not getting either the production response from higher prices or the demand destruction from higher prices today, which means all of that has to happen in the future. Um, so we view the SPR release as obviously dampening prices in the short term, but longer term um, uh, as, as very bullish. In grains, you, we're right at the end of one crop year and the beginning of another crop year in the Ukraine. So the Ukraine and Russia are very impactful to um, agricultural production. Ukraine is very impactful to commodity um, grain exports as well. Exporting 17% of global corn exports come from the Ukraine. So this is very, very substantial. Um, the old crops were exported. The new crops, which are currently being planted now, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty because you know, the governments aren't even publishing any data. The USDA would normally be on the ground in both Russia and the Ukraine providing estimates for what the crop size would be, but they physically can't even get access. So uh, it's creating a very bullish picture forward as to what will be that forward production loss. So the balance sheets one year from today in the agricultural markets where Ukraine is a producer are likely to be significantly um, significantly tighter. Potentially the tightest we've ever seen you know, since the USDA has been keeping records. And why don't producers like OPEC or US shale increase uh, supply for oil? Right, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I would think about it as two different categories, OPEC and then um, the developed market, uh, the non-OPEC producers, um, and shale producers in the in the other bucket. OPEC has very little spare capacity. In um, uh, in prior to the Russian invasion, J.P. Morgan actually published a big piece on on OPEC spare capacity. And prior to the Russian invasion, they thought that OPEC spare capacity would be down to four percent of production by the end of this year, versus thirteen percent a year ago. So the current baseline growth is already absorbing almost all of the spare capacity of OPEC. There's only two countries in OPEC that have even any spare capacity, and that's Saudi and the UAE. Uh, and while they don't publish specific numbers, the best estimates that I've read um, seem to assume that there's less than 2 million barrels of spare capacity left. So I don't think that the current prices are high enough for them to increase production because they're saving those last bullets of spare capacity for significantly higher prices. Um, so the answer to OPEC is they really can't. Uh, and when you're looking at shale and, um, uh, and US and, and other uh, non-OPEC producers, they're not 
thinking about what's best for the consumer. They're thinking about running a company. They're thinking about what their shareholders want. They're focusing on capital costs. They're making decisions on dividends versus reinvestment. And they're planning for long-term um, for the energy transition. And those things are all against them in massively increasing oil production in, in the current moment. Cost of capital for these guys has done nothing but increase as investors have pulled away from hydrocarbons towards more alternative forms of energy. Uh, their shareholders are encouraging them to continue to provide very strong dividends, which is against reinvestment and, and increased production. Um, and when they're thinking about planning for the long-term energy transition, um, ExxonMobil made a comment that they were gonna look to be carbon neutral by 2050. I don't even understand what that can mean. Um, so I don't think that we're going to see very large production increases. And we really haven't yet um, in either natural gas or in oil from um, any of the U.S. producers. And that data is tracked very rapidly. It's published every week. So you would see an uptick. Um, and I think, you know, in addition to all of these factors, the political landscape has just changed such that... Uh, and I think that is factoring very heavily into their decision. Even if they were to increase production, if they increase production in the Permian, but they're not allowed to build pipelines to get oil from the Permian basin, which where they're pumping oil to the refineries in the Gulf Coast, because they can't get those pipelines approved, then there's no point. Um, and so I think that all of these factors are uh, going to have cause us to have a very slow production response in the current environment. They um they 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 kind of got religion because uh, as to, you know listening to Tom you think about the shale investment cycle in the last decade it went through a you know a boom and a spectacular bust and so there's a real discipline of you know the CFOs rather than the engineers um, and if you look at the Economist had a, a really good um, exhibit on this as well where they showed the correlation of WTI um, versus the rig count in the US. And you can see from sort of 2015 onwards to about 2019, it was very positively correlated, AKA as you know, WTI ticked up, um, you know, more rig capacity would come online. Uh, but if you look in 2021 and 2022, that correlation's completely broken down now. Yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. And it was interesting to watch over the past year and a half because, um, you know, we we have a lot of uh, researchers who try to track production and they make production forecasts and demand forecasts so that we can get to sort of forward balance sheets. And almost every single, you know, we, we call them barrel counters, almost every single barrel counter kept having to revise down his production estimates and in natural gas and in oil. And the reason for that is that those correlations that they used broke down. So they would say, okay, the forward curve of natural gas, is it $5 an MMBTU? Therefore, we're going to see a production response of an additional three, um, you know, three, three BCF a day. And it just never happened. Um, so that uh, we had from our perspective, that dynamic you were talking about of the breakdown of higher prices and higher production, you know, we saw that sort of evolving in real time as every month people were needing to revise down their production balance. I think what's interesting about this situation that we're facing in the world is it's a different type of problem that we've had to solve in the last 20 years. If you think about the big things that have happened in the last 20 years, the big problems that have happened, they've tended to be financial in nature. So if you think about the 2008 financial crisis, if you think about the Eurozone sovereign bond crisis um, in 2011 to 2014, these were largely financial problems. And I, I don't want to like dismiss them as like, well, that means they're easy because, you know, I, I remember living through, you know, the, the Eurozone crisis and the financial crisis. It felt like you didn't know whether the sun was going to rise in the morning, but it always did. But these were largely, you know, things that could be fixed by creative accounting um, and creative central bankers, you know, creating money in the right way and filling the holes in the right way. And um, 
But again, I don't want to dismiss that meant they were easy in, in the moment to do. They weren't, but they were money problems. And um, the difference today is these are physical problems. And whether you're looking at whatever commodity spectrum you're looking, whether it's industrial metals, whether it's you know, oil, whether it's agriculture, it's really hard to, it doesn't, it, you, unlimited QE is not gonna solve these problems. It's not gonna bring on more supply. And I think that's what we are, what the world is sort of struggling to kind of come to terms with. Um, the very physical nature of these problems with a very long lag times um, and ultimately what has to happen to, to resolve all of this. Yeah, and I think the world is largely grossly underestimating the just how difficult and painful this, tra this transition uh, is, is going to be um, to the point where, you know, we thought that the sanctions would be, you know, being traders and having views on these things, you know, I did not think that companies would continue to not have a production response. I did not think that um, governments of the world would be willing to um, have such strong sanctions on, on Russia, because I didn't think that they could possibly stomach the pain. And I don't know if maybe they've just underestimated the, the pain or if they're actually willing to sort of go, go through that. Um, but it's going to be a really interesting dynamic to play out. And I think that people are largely underestimating just how hard it is to solve um, when you have every, when almost every commodity in the world is in a deficit. Solving that problem is, is very challenging. Just want to know what it means for investors. So should they be gearing towards or having their portfolio geared towards uh, commodities then? Yeah, so we partnered to create a, an ETF um, that Quantix uh, run. So I'll, I'll let Tom talk a little bit about that shortly. But there's different ways that you can. So we, we think inflation is a problem. Uh, we think it's here to stay. And we think the uh, next inflation cycle is going to look very different from the previous inflation cycle. So if you look at what a 60-40 portfolio has done over the long run, roughly since 1980, a 60-40 portfolio has, has generated about 10% in annualized returns. And that's been against the backdrop of a disinflationary environment. And so if we're transitioning into a new environment, uh, what happens to that 60-40 portfolio? We've seen this year, uh, you know, when rates get this low, uh, uh, equities and, and uh, fixed income become positively correlated, uh, un unlike negatively correlated that we've kind of gotten used to. And so we think commodities um, are largely a forgotten asset class um, and that we think they are the best way to invest um, and ultimately for clients to protect their purchasing power over the, you know, the coming cycle. There's different ways that you can invest to protect against commodities. I'm um, sorry, protect against inflation. Um, you can invest in tips in fixed income. Um, but the problem with tips is uh, they're still very long duration assets. And so the value of tips is not only impacted by what happens to inflation, it's also impacted by the market's expectation over interest rates and ultimately real rates. And so even if you get your inflation call right, you can still be wrong on implementation on tips. And I think we've, we've seen evidence of that you know, this year. Tips have not been a good source of inflation protection. Um, there are other asset classes that you can look at. Um, you can look at, you know, real assets, infrastructure, property. Um, those, those are fine, uh, but they are harder for everyday investors to access. Um, you know, they tend to be kind of uh, available in, in more kind of alternative uh, structures that aren't open to everybody. And then there are equities that have more sensitivity to inflation, you know, energy, commodity equities. However, um, you don't know 
in terms of the producers, how much future or uh, energy production they've hedged out. So you don't really know how sensitive ultimately they're going to be in the long run to, in, to rising inflation. And what tends to happen, you know, in, in like we've seen this year, you get these big risk off moments where bonds sell off and all equities sell off. Because if you're long equities, you're long the equity risk premium. It doesn't matter if you're holding energy or commodity, you're still long the equity risk premium. And this is where commodities diversification benefit um, really, really kicks in. Um, the, the challenge with commodities is that it is not a DIY asset class. Um, and so, you know, in, in the world of kind of Robin Hood investing or trading and how ubiquitous ETFs are, I do worry a little bit that people will sort of try and build things themselves. But that's why we partnered with, with Tom and Quantix was to build something tailor-made and bespoke for an, an inflationary environment. So Tom, I don't know if you want to spend a, a minute or two on some of the considerations that investors need to be aware of. Sure. Uh, so as of this August, I will have been involved with commodity indices for 20 years. Um, so, uh, Congrats. yeah, these are, these are questions I've been answering for, for a long time. Um, so, you know, when you're thinking about commodities, there's, there's two things that I think are, are very important to understand. Um, one is that different commodities have a different pass-through cost to the actual real world. Some commodities are so far down the chain that they don't really have very much of a relationship to what is actually being consumed. So, you know, if you're buying cocoa futures and what you're really buying is you're buying 40 pound bags of raw cocoa beans in the Ivory Coast in Ghana, doesn't really have a relationship to your Hershey's bar. But if you're buying gasoline futures, well, the only difference between gasoline futures and what you're buying at the pump is a 3% markup plus taxes and transportation. So a very much a very close relationship. So I think the first thing you need to focus on when you're thinking about um, commodities as an in, uh, inflation hedge for your portfolio is what is the pass-through cost? Is this commodity actually relevant to what is happening in um, the real world? And the commodity itself might be, but you have to look at the specific commodity future that's available for trading. The second key thing is focusing on the long-term performance. So some commodities have uh, significant negative roll yields due to the construct of the futures where others don't. And optimizing for, for better roll yield and capturing that backwardation um, when you're in a scarcity environment is incredibly important. To provide an example from the 90s, so from 1993 to 1997, oil prices were up 80%. But a passive rolling position in commodity futures in the way that we, that we roll, um, staying sort of towards the prompt, but not in the congestion zone, had a return of 340% over the same time period. So prices were up 80%. A long only rolling investment in, in just oil futures was up 340% over that time period. So um, focusing on how to capture and best optimize that roll yield is incredibly important. And that's what we've tried to do with um, QII, the Quantix Inflation Index, which has a dual mandate of targeting the commodities that have the highest sensitivity to inflation, um, as well as targeting the commodities that are gonna deliver the best uh, returns from backwardation or the, you know, the least cost from contango, which is a more normal, normal yield curve. But optimizing the roll yield has a larger impact on long-term commodity investment performance than the commodity price itself. So it's a very important to get both of those two things right. And QII sort of represents our best thinking on those two topics. And that's where we've sort of partnered with, with Christoph and, and his team. So Q, QII is the index um, that Quantix developed the, to, to protect against inflation. And we've created an ETF to track that index. And you know, listening to Tom, uh, I'm a simple guy. I, I break it down even more simply that to invest in commodities, you need to get two things. You need to get the fundamental thesis correct, and you need to get the technical implementation correct. 
the fundamental thesis is which commodities do you want to be exposed to and when in the market cycle, how diversified you want to be across those commodities. And then the technical aspect that comes into play in commodities investing that doesn't come into play in equities is where in the curve you want to invest, whether you're investing one month out, three months out, six months out. And as Tom said, the, the return or the decision of where you invest on the curve can actually be, in, in more often than not, more important than actually which commodity uh, that you're invested in. And again, because this has not been a, a, a DIY asset class, I, I think it's one where we, we feel really strongly um, that partnering with a, a specialized uh, manager in this asset class, and this, this is all they do uh, day in and day out, is a, is a prudent thing for, for investors to do. Mm -hmm. And Tom, uh, can you comment on different commodity markets like energy versus agriculture versus industrial metals? And which ones um, do you view right now to be uh, the most uh, attractive? Um, yeah, for sure. So the current environment is, is very unique in that while these sectors tend to be reasonably uncorrelated, um, there's several factors that are, I think, in the current environment are going to cause them to be to be very correlated. So those three factors are um, one demand. This is, you know, while production, we're not seeing a production response, but this is undoubtedly a demand led commodity market in environment. Um, so the, the that is a function of global wealth increasing, which increases consumption for food and agriculture. Um, but really, all of the consumable commodities, which we think of as energy, agriculture, and industrial metals, are all seeing very, very strong demand. And we think that that is going to remain, um, cause them to remain somewhat correlated. The second thing that's causing these things to remain correlated is that energy prices have a pass-through to all the other sectors. So, um, if it's for fertilizer, which is produced from, from natural gas for agriculture um, or diesel fuel, which is uh, obviously consumed in the agricultural process. Um, but things like aluminum have very, very high input costs from energy. So what we've seen is we've seen all of the commodities becoming a lot more correlated um, for those, those reasons. And I think the third factor that's gonna really cause these commodities to all be correlated is that they're all linked together in the energy transition. Um, energy, obviously, you know, you're seeing higher costs of capital as investment capital is moving away from the sector. Um, in agriculture, the impact of biofuels is, is very substantial. So over the last five years, so five years ago, 30% of the US bean oil crop was turned into biodiesel. Now, this year, it's 45%. So you've seen a 50% increase in the amount of bean oil being used to create biodiesel. So that's sort of taking food out of um, the ability to be consumed as, as food. Uh, and the base metals obviously are, are going to be very heavily impacted by the energy transition as you start thinking about uh, the amount of infrastructure that, that needs to be built is, is very substantial. And Base metals has the longest sort of production response cycle. A mine takes about five years. Agriculture, you can see a response cycle um, within one year as these things are normally planted annually. But the issue we have here is that land is essentially capped out. We've increased wealth, we've increased population while we've decreased land under cultivation globally. That's just an unsustainable um, situation. Uh, and you know we've we've talked uh, I think pretty thoroughly about the production response or lack of in in energy. Oh man, yeah, this is all uh, very interesting. It's quite. I mean, it, it just it, there's obviously a human element to all of this as well. Uh, you know, higher food prices, higher energy prices, shortages. Um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, we're very lucky where we live in the U.S. Um, this is going to be impact. This is going to have a, a meaningful impact on the livelihoods of you know hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people around the world in in low income countries. Um, and you're already beginning to see 
signs of you know civil unrest, protests uh, against higher prices, um, and you know so I, I think the there's there's secondary tertiary you know investment implications from this, and unfortunately I think within emerging markets it's going to cause um, some some issues as well. And uh, the energy transition uh, aspect, um, can you tell me more about that and would, um, I guess, why or what should investors know in terms of, of that or commodity investing? So, Tom, do you want to jump in? And if you, Tom, if you don't share your analogy about the change, I'm going to share it for you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I've told Christoph in the past that I think the current energy transition um, cycle is the most impactful shift in commodities since we moved away from whale oil. Um, and it's not even that much of that's not even much of an exaggeration. Um, you know, I think moving towards carbon neutrality is going to require technologies and processes that aren't invented yet. Right. And there's a ton of investment capital all moving towards that sector. Right. Um, and you've seen that the cost of capital for offshore wind farms compared to the cost of capital for offshore oil wells has completely diverged. Um, but the singular bottleneck with all of these uninvented technologies is going to be commodities. Right. You're going to need a lot of um, a specific set of commodities how exactly all of that's gonna work, how exactly we're gonna get batteries that are efficient enough um, is, is maybe uncertain. But the fact that you're going to need commodities to produce them, that you're going to need copper or other highly conductive materials to really expand the power infrastructure um, to allow for electric vehicles, that I think is sort of being, being overlooked. And I think the single greatest risk that a lot of these energy transition concepts have is that you might just not have enough of the commodity to do it, or that in doing it, you're gonna double or triple the price of, of those commodities. So specifically the sectors that I think are gonna get caught up in energy transition, um, one is, is biofuels. Uh, and you know people have talked about transitioning away from consumed agriculture for, uh, for biofuels, which is sort of still the primary source is, is corn and, and soybeans. Um, but that's still very, very unproven. And as a result, we continue to um, put more and more of um, consumed agricultural commodities into forms of transportation. Uh, I think carbon and emissions, that is a, a rapidly expanding market. Um, I was talking to one of the head of sales at a major bank the other day, and he told me that he thinks that their emissions business 10 years from now will be bigger than their oil business. Wow. Um, that, that is just a dramatic shift because right now it's emissions is, is very small market. Um, natural gas, I think will serve as a transition energy. It's cleaner than oil, but ultimately will we want to even move away from natural gas? Um, you know, I think that that is, is still very far down the road. You're gonna need natural gas as a transition energy probably for 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, when you think about the amount of infrastructure associated with using these commodities that we need to now create new infrastructure that doesn't use some of these commodities in the things like oil. Uh, it, it's the, the timeline is tremendous and the cost is going to be uh, very, very significant, you know, and base metals and precious metals are going to really be needed to expand a lot of this, a lot of this infrastructure. So um, this is something that we have been very focused on and that we have been getting a lot of questions from clients on. Uh, and as a result, we're very shortly going to publish um, the Quantix Energy Transition Index, um, which will be available on all the on all the major sources. And you know, we think that this is the best approach at a broad-based commodity basket um, to give investors access to to this theme. So I, our index is going to include all of these sectors that that I just so, spoke about. I think. Um... Energy transition will probably be the biggest theme in investing for the rest of our careers. It's our biggest collective challenge um, as a society um, to get to net zero for in, you know environmental reasons. And I think the you know the tragic um, situation in, in Europe is only going to accelerate that. 
you know, I'm, I'm actually, uh, coincidentally, I'm holding a, a printout from the European Commission, which they released in February. And the, and the first sentence says, following the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, the case for rapid clean energy transition has never been stronger and clearer. And shortly after that came out, you saw Germany commit to a net zero goal um, by 2035, 15 years quicker than the 2050 goal that they had previously um, agreed to. So this, this, I think this energy transition is um, going to have profound consequences for you know how we live first and foremost, um, but certainly how we invest, what we invest in, um, and I, you know I feel very confident that we'll we'll get to a solution long term. You know the the one thing uh, the the silver lining to the COVID cloud was the amazing things that scientists and engineers can do when they're mobilized um, for non-economic reasons. And we see the same things ultimately going to happen uh, to the energy space as well. And it's uh, it's quite exciting. And um, Christoph, I forgot to ask uh, for the uh, for the ETF. Who's uh, who's your target audience for that? So um, investors, we we think any long only investor that's invested for the long term across public markets, equities, and fixed income, we think the ETF um, would play a role in a diversified portfolio subject to individuals, risk considerations and constraints, uh, but the, the negative correlation and diversification benefits in this inflationary environment, we feel are too good to ignore. How should investors go about um, deciphering between the marketing of, because I know you said uh, a lot of people are probably going to gear towards energy transition and you may have your snake oil salesman in that. So how do you go about uh, finding the right information to understand that that space? I, I think it's um, that's always a, a great question. Um, remove as much uncertainty as you can. And I think Tom made a great point earlier where he said, we don't, the technologies haven't even been invented yet. Um, and so to invest in the technologies today is, is difficult. Um, however, what, what, what do you know for certain or more, uh, for, for more sure in, in this sphere is the commodities that are needed? You know, it's the periodic table is the periodic table. Um, I, I, you know, unless unless Elon Musk does some wonderful, you know, mining in outer space and we discover new minerals with wonderful new uh, chemistry and properties, we know the commodities that we have today that we need to create those unknown technology solutions. And we know, you know, take copper, for example, um, cop the amount of copper needed in an EV car uh, versus an internal combustion engine. I think it's eight to 10 times more copper is needed in an EV car. Um, and when you look at this as an investor, you've got to look at, uh, do, do you believe in EVs? Are they going to grow? Are they ultimately going to replace the internal combustion engine? Well, yes. Then what are some of the second order effects of that? We would arrive at the view that that's going to be bullish for um, copper. And then you look at, then you can do your fundamental analysis on, on the copper dynamic. And Tom mentioned, um, you know, if you decide to build a new copper mine today, you don't start churning out that new copper tomorrow. It takes eight to 10 years. And so you look at some of these structural demand forces, you look at some of the supply squeeze, um, and then you can start to arrive at an investment conclusion um, of how to invest in a thing like this. But Tom, I don't know if you've got anything to add there. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a saying at Quantix, uh, find the signal through the noise. And it's something that we focus on a lot. And when I apply that to this space, you know, there's, there's this headline, there's that headline, but ultimately none of them have, have done the shopping list, right? Does Germany have any idea what it's going to take from a raw commodities perspective to actually achieve net carbon neutral by 2035? I mean, it's going to be nearly impossible because if they actually wanted to do that they would need to start buying all of the commodities today the lack of the lack of planning of what it will actually take to achieve these goals i think is is sort of almost borderline irresponsible but the political will 
to achieve this is very, very strong. But even beyond the political will, we're seeing corporations and individuals making the choice. So, you know, I don't, I think that this is a theme that, that's going to be here last. And ultimately, the single bottleneck is, is going to be the commodities that you need for this sort of new energy economy, which is different than what you need for the old energy economy. I also think it's worth noting. So what does that mean for the old energy economy commodities, right? Um, does that mean that oil isn't a good investment? Well, no, because the path to getting away from oil is going to be through higher prices because ultimately governments will apply the pressure on the producers. The producers will produce less, but until we actually get to the spot where we're consuming the new commodities, we're going to be paying more and more for the old commodities, which will help to facilitate the transition, um, but also cause um, ultimately consumer pain in, in the short term. And the short term, by the short term, I mean probably 10 years, because when you're talking about energy transition, I think everything is on a 50-year timescale. And uh, so just wanting to uh, wrap up the this part of the conversation with just uh, take-home thoughts on um, inflation and investing in commodities. So yeah, I look. I think as investors, um, we all have a, we all have biases, and I think we tend to underestimate things that haven't. We we tend to underestimate the probability of things that haven't happened before in our frame of reference. So if we've been in the markets, you know, Tom said it's 20 years, I'm, I'm roughly the same. Um, we haven't really known a painful inflation cycle. And I think that what investors have to look at is on a go forward basis, what is the probability? What are the facts? How do they line up? And what does that ultimately mean for inflation? And we do think, you know, I know these were the Sir John Templeton's four most dangerous words in investing this time is different. I think that's five words, actually. But I think from an inflation perspective, this time is different, certainly different from what we've known in our careers. And um, the that commodities play a really critical role in helping clients protect their hard-earned um, net worth and, and purchasing power um, in their in their portfolios. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen commodity interest ebb and flow, you know, over, over the last 20 years. Um, but when they wrote the commodity textbooks, on, when they wrote the textbooks on like why to have commodities as a percentage of your portfolio, and they started doing those, you know, back in the early 90s, when commodity indices first came out, this current time period is the textbook example of why you need to own commodities. The best thing that could happen for someone who owns a lot of equities is that commodities go down a lot because the biggest risk I think they have is that commodities go up a lot. Um, I don't think that this current environment is going to be is going to be transitory. I don't think that inflation is going to be transitory. Christophe made an interesting comment at the beginning that hey, everybody has just gotten this wrong. And um, I think a big part of that is because they thought the production response would be very different than than it is in reality, and and I don't see that I don't see that changing. Um, I think that you know we've had a decent commodity rally, and and some of the bullish factors have been priced in, um, but I think that backwardation is going to continue to drive a lot of returns, and I don't think that we're pricing in um, necessarily the bull case. I think that most of these commodities are still pricing in the base case. Um, but the backwardation could continue to drive a lot of returns. Um, and, uh, you know, I still think that there's a lot of these commodities have, have a lot of upside because we're not seeing a production response. And I think we're still far from demand destruction. So ultimately, I don't know how else you solve the problem of these, of these deficits. All right. And just wanted to switch over to some personal questions here. Uh, what are you guys' hobbies? So my geeky answer, my job is my hobby. Uh, I honestly, I love being able to find people like Tom and Quantix to create unique solutions to help our clients solve, you know, real problems um, that they have. Uh, so I just, I, I, you know, I would be remiss of me to say I absolutely love what I do and feel very, very fortunate to do what I do. Um, you know, outside of that, my passion is, is football or soccer. Uh, Crystal Palace on my team based in South London. 
And I'm a little bit sad this week because um, they lost a big game on Sunday at Wembley in front of 80,000 people. They lost to Chelsea 2-0. And I was lucky enough to be there. Um, but uh, that, those, in terms of my hobbies, that would be my, uh, my main one. And my kids are just getting into them now as well, which is great. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm going to steal the first part of Christoph's answer because, you know, similarly, I, I love what I do uh, and I do it a lot. Um, and I love the people that I do it with. So I feel very, very blessed from that, from that perspective. Work, work doesn't feel like work. Um, so, you know, that, that's a lot of my focus. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I just like to be outside if it's cycling or playing golf or playing tennis. Um, it doesn't even matter. I just, I just like being outdoors. Nice. And what are you guys' favorite books? So, uh, last time I gave you a completely irrelevant example, I talked about Lord of the Rings. If you remember, I talked about reading Lord of the Rings to my eldest son. Uh, so this time I'm going to go opposite and give something really relevant to the conversation. There's a book I'm currently reading, and it's called The World for Sale. The World for Sale. And it is all about commodities and how the world actually works. And actually, when you come to think of it, how few of us really know how we get all the stuff out of the ground, how it gets refined, how it gets moved around, how it ends up in goods is something that we've just taken for granted um, for our entire livelihoods. And I think with what's gonna happen now, we're gonna start to see that it doesn't work as efficiently as we thought. And so I'm finding this book really interesting and fascinating just to learn um, that side of it. In, in a similar way to like, my analogy is in 2008, we all needed to learn how shadow banking worked. No one spent any time thinking about shadow banking until we had to. And I think, um, you know, commodities and natural resources are, are similar. We're, we're in a similar um, era with them now. Uh, yeah, the, the, everything I read falls into two categories. Uh, one is um, financial markets and, and commodity related. And, and right now I'm reading a book on uh, sentiment analysis in, in commodity markets. It's sort of interesting. Um, or uh, it's a book that's chosen chosen by my children for for me to read, um, <laughs> and that's 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 pretty much my my reading world right what now. What are you what are you, what are you reading <laughs> to your kids at the moment? Yeah. The current favorite is uh, Steam Train Dream Train, okay, which, which I'd highly recommend. All right, I'll look it up. Yeah, <laughs> nice, <laughs> very nice. Um, yeah, uh, Tom and Christoph just wanted to thank you both for taking time for the podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom here as well. Thank you very much for having us. It was fun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Hello, Value Walk listeners. I want to thank you for your time. If you have any guest recommendations, questions, comments, and feedback, please email me at rpanganaban at valuewalk.com. I would love to hear back from you and appreciate your support. Thank you again.